One of the most difficult things to do in terms of pastoral ministry is to make distinctions between the lost and the saved. There will always be people with sensitive consciences. They're obviously converted. There's evidence and fruit, but they never can seem to have assurance. And then there are those people who have all the assurance in the world. They're convinced that they are believers, and there is no evidence whatsoever. And so we have to ask the question, Carl, will there always be evidence, fruit, proof when a man is converted? Until the 1960s, the universal consensus among Protestants, especially among Reformed people, was yes, saving faith will always show up. And one of the most nefarious movements in the history of the church over the last 500 years began to spring up, the whole carnal Christian theory. And you had people writing on this and saying, it is very possible for a man to be saved on his way to heaven, have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and have absolutely no fruit or evidence. Well, thankfully, the Reformed Church has pushed back hard against that. The carnal Christian theory seems to be dying a slow death, but it hangs on. Well, tonight, we're going to be looking at this exact issue And we're going to look at both what the Old Testament and New Testament have to teach us. In our exposition of the book of Joshua, we began last week looking at the saga of Rahab in Joshua 2. An astoundingly courageous, brilliant woman, the Gentile ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now just to remind you of physical geography and context... Israel is now massed. When you open up Joshua 2, and you will need your text, not only there, but we're going to be looking at at least three other New Testament texts which shine spotlights on our text. In fact, the conclusion we'll arrive at is because the New Testament will tell us who Rahab is, that she's truly converted, will remind us of the evidence that is there. But right now, as we open this text... Israel is massed somewhere two to five million strong on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're just across the river from Canaan, the promised land, and the residents of Canaan know they're over there. They can see them. It's hard to hide two to five million people. So Joshua is their leader. He's the military, governmental, religious leader of Israel. And for starters, to start the whole transition off, Joshua sends two brave, faithful spies to scout out the west side of the Jordan, specifically Jericho, the first city they would encounter in Canaan. And it's well known, Jericho is a a strategic, well-fortified, walled city. The spies sent by Joshua come in at night, and we're told that in verse 2 of our text, and immediately the spy network, the gossip network was so was uh, so well developed that the entire city knew they were there. A Canaanite harlot, Rahab, hides the Israelite spies, we're told in verse 4. And so the king of Jericho sends his men over to take the spies into custody at Rahab's establishment. Rahab lies and sends the Jericho police on a wild goose chase. Now I want us to seek the Lord's help, and we're going to be digging in deep We're going to be looking at what is Rahab's status. What can she teach us about the assurance of faith? And especially for those of you who struggle with assurance and those of you who are proud and have false assurance, I hope you'll pay very, 
very careful attention, not only what our text says, but what the New Testament says about our text. So let's seek the help of the Lord at this time. Our Father who art in heaven, we ask that you would now send the Holy Spirit to illumine your holy word, giving us concentration and insight and remembrance of everything we hear. Lead us into the clearest understandings of your gospel. Give us the gift of saving faith and even assurance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> this text is a, is a Reformation text because you can see all of the five solas in this text. For example, sola gratia. Joshua 2 and the salvation of Rahab is one of the clearest examples of free grace in the Bible. Rahab's conversion is marvelously clear. She is saved by grace alone. But Carl, she lived 1,400 years before the cross. Absolutely. But every person who's ever been converted or ever will be converted has been saved, will be saved by grace alone. Rahab is a wonderful example of salvation by grace. This is a woman who's dead in trespasses and sins. A used up woman with a stony heart. Grace fits Rahab's experience perhaps better than anyone else in the Bible. She has no claim on God. He owed her nothing. She was morally undeserving of favor. She was a harlot. She was at the bottom of the moral ranking. She was covenantally and ethnically undeserving since she was a Gentile. She had no Bible. She had no covenant, no promises, no law. She had no hope. Even worse, she was a Canaanite. The people who'd been singled out for judgment by God for 400 years. She didn't get what she deserved, which was wrath. Instead, she received mercy. And of course, that's our story too. God didn't save anyone in this room because of your deserving, but by his grace alone. But there's more senses in which this is a Reformation text. Not only is, is it a sola gratia text where we see Rahab saved by grace alone, it's a sola fide text. Rahab was saved through faith as the instrument, the instrument for receiving God's grace and salvation. All that Rahab did, and we will see that so clearly tonight, was because she believed. Now, we saw the substance of her faith last week. Her faith wasn't just an empty faith, a faith in, in faith itself. Her faith had content. So look carefully with me as we slowly move towards what saving faith does is there evidence of saving faith? But I want you to be reminded of the substance of our faith. Look at verse 11. We are told that she believes in the, the person of Jehovah. She knows that he is living and true, and she uses his name, not that of Baal or Ashtoreth. Look at what she says in her conversation with the two spies in verse 11. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she believes the promises of God. And what makes this so staggering, I said it last week and had people come up to me and say, Carl, how could this woman believe the promises of God even though they weren't for her? Look at verse 9 and notice what it is she believes. She says to these two Israelite spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. 
that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. When she says, I know that the Lord has given you the lamb, she knows about the promises God has made to Israel. And so the only way she can access those promises is she could somehow, oh, but this is too good to imagine, is she could somehow be grafted into the people of God, into the children of Abraham. And of course, that's exactly what happens. She doesn't know many promises of God, but the ones she does know, she believes that Jehovah is going to give a land to the, the people of God. And the promise wasn't even given to her. It was given to Israelites. And then notice what else she believes. Look deeper at her faith in verse 10. She believes in the dominion and sovereignty of God. We're told in verse 10, she believes that it was the Lord who dried up the water of the Red Sea. She doesn't grab onto a naturalistic explanation like, well, Israel, you came through the Red Sea during the dry season. And then again in verse 11, she states her belief, she believes that God is heaven above and on the earth beneath. And we, what I want you to see though, is I want you to hear very clearly, because there are going to be things that shake your understanding in just a moment. I want you to see that the New Testament is very clear in saying, this woman is saved. She's the genuine article. She has saving faith. Keep one finger here and look at Hebrews 11. And I want to remind you, we looked at this last week. We'll look at this each time we talk about Rahab. I said it last week. This is your sister in Christ. This is a believer. You will meet her in heaven. She is the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not ashamed to call her his brethren. Hebrews 11, we read in verse 31, by faith. Now, of course, this is the hall of faith. The listing of all these people in Hebrews 11 are all converted. These are all people who had saving faith. Hebrews eleven thirty-one: by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, when she had received the spies with peace. Now, when you think about what is the root of her faith, the root of her faith was the same root that you have. Her faith came by hearing. Romans ten seventeen tells us that's how faith always come. And so she tells us in our text in Joshua 2, over and over again, she says things like, we've heard about you. We've heard of the actions of God. And so when Rahab heard, she, she heard with a believing ear. She had a New Testament conversion before the cross. Now, what I want you to begin to do with me is I want you to begin to think theologically. I want you to ratchet up your understanding of soteriology how God saves men and what he does after he saves men. And this is the, going to be the case with Rahab or you or your grandmother. In any case, when the Lord saves somebody, there will be immediate evidence, fruit, and proof. Now, I want you to see how that falls out. Again, I know I'm going to make you do a lot of work. You're probably exhausted from eating two slices of Mother's Day pie, but... Lift those weary arms one more time. Look at Ephesians 2. And again, I told you we'd be looking at three to four New Testament texts. And this is a didactic text which explains to us how we are saved and what follows afterwards. And it certainly can be applied immediately to Rahab. In Ephesians 2, a text that's so familiar, it may be the first text you ever memorized. It certainly was the first verse I ever memorized. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. 
Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. We've just been talking about that. Sola gratia, sola fide. You've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then notice what follows immediately afterwards. As soon as a man is saved by grace through faith, what are we told about that man? There's going to be evidence. There's going to be good works. Look at what Paul says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The writer of Ephesians 2 doesn't say, well, salvation is by grace through faith, but nothing ever comes of it. When a man believes, he's not a changed man. Look at what Paul wants to add on as soon as he talks about salvation by grace and faith in Ephesians 2.10. He wants to say, now don't get me wrong. A man who's, who's been saved by grace alone and by faith alone, he'll not be lazy. He will get to work because God has ordained good works for him to walk in. And if there's anything I want to convince you of tonight, it is this. Saving faith always shows itself by fruit, good works, action, and evidence. And I want to demonstrate that salvation by grace through faith shows itself immediately. Not 15 or 20 years down the line. This is our public theology. This is our confessional stance. Every elder, every deacon, every pastor here believes this and has said, this is my doctrine. Listen to what our confession says over and over again. For example, in the chapter in our confession on justification, it says, faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied by all saving graces and is no dead faith but works in love. That's in our statement on justification. The larger catechism adds its voice. Question 73, how does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which always accompany it. Then again, our statement on good works, which we just confessed corporately, says those good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And so what I want us to see is how the New Testament teaches us if we didn't have these two texts, If we didn't have Hebrews 11 and James 2, we might even scratch our head about Rahab. But these two New Testament books, both, and they're proving very different things, but these two New Testament passages want to say, get this straight. Rahab had saving faith, and here's how we know it, because there was evidence. So look, first of all. As I said, beside the account in Joshua 2, we have two inspired commentaries, two New Testament commentaries on this historical narrative, two spirit-given interpretations that should guide how we view Rahab. And we believe one of those great principles of Reformation hermeneutics is Scripture interprets Scripture. It was A.W. Pink who used to say when people would come to him and say, I read this passage, I don't understand it. And Pink would say, have you read the whole Bible? No, not yet. He'd say, come back to me after you've read the whole Bible. Because the answer is in the scripture. Scripture will interpret scripture. And so look at Hebrews 11. We just looked at it just a moment ago. Hebrews 11, where this is the inspired New Testament commentary on Rahab. And we are told there in Hebrews 11.31, By faith, 
the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Here it comes. Watch carefully. When she received the spies with peace or in peace. Now notice Hebrews 11 repeatedly says of these dozens of people listed there, repeatedly says that saving faith makes people act, not sit like a bump on a log and say, well, I'm saved by faith alone. Don't need to do anything. What Rahab did with the spies, she did by faith. She did something because she believed God's promise. What is it she did? Listen to me. She identified herself with the people of God and the cause of God. She received these two men because they were part of the people who worshipped the true and living God. Look at what Hebrews eleven thirty one says about Rahab's neighbors. They weren't spared. These did not believe, we're told. They didn't have an acting faith. Men will be judged by this standard. And now I'm, you're going to say, Carl, that you're just really pushing me. You're going to have me turn to another text? Men will be judged by this standard on the last day as to whether or not their faith is real. Is there evidence? Look at Matthew 25 and notice what the New Testament tells us. And what we're going to hear is Jesus is going to say to everyone who comes to him, who stands before him, this will be you, this will be me, your name is in this text. And to all those sheep on the right hand, he's going to say, enter in because there was evidence to back up your confession. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31. Again, gear up your brain cells because we're taking this to a point about Rahab. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here it comes. Why is he going to welcome them in? I was hungry and you gave me food. That's evidence. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. More evidence. I was a stranger and you took me in. Now the evidence is piling up. I was naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, in prison and you came to me. The righteous, of course, will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he does the exact same thing with the unbelievers and says, you didn't give me a drink. You didn't come and visit me. And so notice what will happen in Matthew 25 when Jesus answers them in verse 40. What is it that he's specifically looking for as evidence? Look carefully at Matthew 25, 40. Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my Brethren, he's saying, what was your action towards fellow believers? Is there evidence that you loved fellow believers and you served them? He said, if so, you did it to me. Who does Rahab show hospitality to? Fellow believers, the only two who had ever come into her place of business. The only two she could show kindness to. 
She was welcoming to strangers, something that Jesus congratulated, said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Now again, let me keep saying, good works are not for salvation, but they're evidence showing salvation. The application is very easy to make concerning Rahab. Some people of God came to her door in need. They needed to eat and drink and rest, and they especially needed protection. They were strangers. She'd never seen them before. But Rahab knew that they were the people of God. She knew that, and so she welcomed them in peace and fed them. And by doing so, she manifested. She gave evidence to vital godliness and piety. That's the first commentary on Rahab. Now look at the second. It's far more weighty. Look at James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, James here uses Rahab as an example of a living and vital faith. Oh, how thankful I am that the Holy Spirit has put both of these New Testament commentaries in the canon of Scripture so we can have such a clear line of evidence and sight on who Rahab really was. Rahab here in James chapter 2, especially verses 25 through 26, uses Rahab as an example of a living vital faith. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, look what James does. He gives two very diverse examples. In fact, you couldn't get two more diverse case studies whereby James could prove his point and silence all the objections. Example number one, he says just above the Rahab example in verse 21, He knows, James knows that no one's going to dispute his use of Abraham. After all, Abraham is the patriarch of Judaism. He's, according to Romans 4, the father of all who believe. And so James refers to a historical incident. Look at your text in James chapter 2. And he begins the discussion in verse 21. And he's referring to an incident, a very familiar incident in Genesis 22, when the Lord commands Abraham to take his only son Isaac and sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't just say in that moment, I believe God's word and his promise to bring a redeemer through my family line. I believe it. He acts on God's command. His obedience proves his faith. And what James means by this statement, look at it in verse 22 and 23. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture is fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What what James is saying is, is the earlier statement of, James, of Abraham's justification, his saving faith, is proved by his actions. His faith was mature but not proven until he had walked with God for years. The conclusion James draws first about Abraham in verse 24 is faith and works are inseparable. Now James turns. Look at the second inspired commentary on Rahab's life. James turns in verse 25 and 26 to an illustration of a living faith. Rahab is the anti-Abraham. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's an accursed Canaanite. She's a prostitute. No specific promises have been made to her, unlike Abraham. She's an immoral woman with a dark, stained reputation, unlike Abraham, who's held in the highest repute. The greatest conceivable contrast to Abraham. But both James here and the writer of Hebrews earlier honors her as a woman of great faith. Why? Well, she confessed her faith. She confessed. So far, so good. She confessed her faith. Remember back in Joshua 2.11, where she's stating what she believed about God, that he was the only true God, that he was the one who made promises and kept them. She'd confessed her faith. Then she acted. 
She acted on her brand new faith by harboring the Jewish spies which came to her city, and she sent them out by a safe way. As simple as her story of faith was, it was a faith that demonstrated itself in an incredibly dangerous, tangible manner. She didn't say to the Jewish spies who came to her house, go in peace, I wish you well, I hope you're safe and warm. She acted. She was the simplest new believer, but she had a living, acting faith. She didn't have the benefit of believing parents or living in a Christian nation or having a moral background. She was a prostitute. She knew very little. She had no Bible. She had heard just bits and snippets. But what she'd heard, she believed. Faith came by hearing, and then she acted on what she knew. These two examples that James gives, Abraham and then Rahab, were given to prove a point by James that both showed they had a real living faith by their works. There was fruit, evidence. They proved that the issue is not your race or your gender. It's not the era of history that you live in, but that the possessor of saving faith will always demonstrate it by evidence. James' point in our context here in James 2 is that a mere confession of faith, listen to me so carefully, a mere confession of faith proves nothing about whether or not a man possesses saving faith. Look at James 2.14. I'm not overstating the case at all. James states in James 2.14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? And the answer to that rhetorical question is a resounding no. And then James carries on in James 2, verse 15 through 17. If a brother or sister, again, it's a fellow believer, confessing believer. If a brother or sister is destitute, naked, has no daily food, and one of you says to them, here's your chance, good works to show to a believer, depart in peace. Be warmed, be filled, and you don't give them the things which are needed for the body. What does that profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now apply this to Rahab and see why she serves as such a perfect example. Suppose she had said to the spies, Fellas, I believe in your God. I've heard the reports along with all the other Jerichoites, and I know it's just a matter of time before your forces take the city. Yet it wouldn't be wise for me to be seen with you and to be identified with you. It wouldn't be good if you came into my house. The king might find out and I could be in big trouble. Go in peace. I hope you find a meal and a warm bed and I'll pray for you. You'd say, she doesn't have a living faith. Would she have had, would she be listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 if she had responded like that? No. Of course not. Carl, don't insult our intelligence. It's so obvious. Well, the obvious is not obvious to some. The point is you wouldn't count it as anything if Rahab had just made a confession, a verbal confession. I believe in your God. I believe he rules over heaven and earth. The two spies are saying, then act on that belief and help us out then. What would you have said of Rahab's faith if she'd said, oh no, that would just cause me trouble. That would be expensive and dangerous. Bare confession, James says, 
doesn't prove a saving faith. What if you say, but Carl, uh, in my case, I don't just have a confession. I got very emotional about my confession. Well, Rahab says our hearts have melted. We've had all these gripping emotional experiences. That's why James counters that by saying emotions. Even the demons believe in tremble. No, there must be an active demonstration that the professed faith is alive and working. Otherwise, that kind of barren faith doesn't save. Rahab's faith, by the way, is immediately put to the severest of tests. She's a brand new believer, maybe a day, maybe a week as a believer. She must engage in activities that are life-threatening to prove she really is loyal to God and his people. How will genuine faith show itself? By a willingness to lay down her life for God and his people. Isn't that what John says in 1 John 3.16? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what Rahab did. She put her life on the line. The literary tension back in our text in Joshua 2 is gripping. She risks her life to protect two men she'd never met until that night for this one simple reason. Because they were fellow believers. It's obvious that she has a living faith. It's interesting in James chapter 2, James' repeated phrase that he uses over and over and over again, three separate times, is faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. That's James's takeaway message. But James isn't the only person on the pages of the New Testament to demand good works as the evidence of salvation. Let's bring in a higher authority, James's brother. The Lord Jesus Christ. When he says in Matthew 7, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. He goes on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It can't be stressed enough. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. It can't be stressed enough that no one can be saved by works. Salvation is entirely by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God. But neither can it be stressed too often that faith, if not accompanied by works, is dead. Genuine saving faith will always, in every case, and no, you're not the exception, in every case, produce fruit, obedience, and good works. This is the expression of the new life which was created in the new birth. How do we apply this? You'll notice that the table is spread before us tonight and one of the very important things that a person must do before they come to the table is examine their own heart, their own life. Am I truly in Christ? Is my faith a living faith? Let me make a few applications as we move towards the table. The first is, I want to say it again so that there is no confusion. We preach and teach salvation by grace alone in opposition to deserving. Grace is sovereign and free. God can save whomever he wants, show his favor to whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases. All alike, Gentiles and Jews are saved by grace. The apostles never grew tired of exalting grace, and neither should we. God saves sinners by grace. But secondly, we have to immediately add the warning against dead faith. There is such a thing as a non-saving faith, and that is faith without any evidence. 
And so let me ask you, what is the proof? What is the fruit? What is the evidence that your faith is a living faith? Where have you stood in times of spiritual crisis, with the Jerichoites or with the people of God? Don't lose sight and forget James's point. Faith without works is dead. Write it on the blackboard 500 times. Faith without works is not saving faith. A non-working, lawless, fruitless faith is evidence that a man is unconverted. J.C. Ryle said in his brilliant essay entitled Conversions, Ryle said, Never will I allow that the blessed Holy Spirit can be in a man's heart and life when no fruit of the Spirit can be seen in his life. That is a counterfeit conversion which can only please the devil and will lead the man who is satisfied with it not to heaven but to hell. Let me give some pastoral counsel to the newest believer here, to youth who are in the communicants class, who your response when you hear this is. But Carl, I'm, I'm a new Christian. I'm a kid. I'm 13 years old. I'm in communicants class. I'll produce fruit one day years from now. You know when I'm grown up and kind of old like you. I'll produce fruit then. I've got things to do, Carl. I've got to, you know, I've got to, I've got to go to college, and I've got to get married, and I've got to get a job, and I've got to have kids, and then I'll think about producing fruit, you know, 30, 40. Because, Carl, it's possible, I'm a, I'm a carnal Christian, it's possible, you know, to, to have a good confession and to, to state I'm a believer and to go on year after year after year with no evidence. Rahab debunks that immediately. She is the newest Christian in the book. Brand new converted. Converted for a few days, perhaps at best. She has a new faith, an untaught faith, an immature faith. She doesn't have a Bible, a church, or Christian fellowship. But hers is already an active, living faith. If there is no evidence, my friend, when we go to prayer in just a moment... Plead with God now to produce a harvest of fruit in your life as the evidence of saving faith. Let me say by final application, no amount of orthodox knowledge of theological propositions is proof that a man is converted. Did you hear that? No amount of orthodox knowledge of theological propositions is proof that a man is converted. The demons know good theology. That's what James says in James 2. And by this, I'm not saying that men should cast off the careful study of the Bible and theology. God forbid, I've spent the last 36 years teaching the Bible and theology and will continue to do so as long as God gives me breath. I'm simply asserting this. Lost men and demons can also hold the true propositions. But James' point is clear, and he makes it about Rahab. The evidence that a man is truly converted is not orthodox knowledge alone, but good works of compassion, obedience, fruit. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we prepare now to come to your holy table, keep us from self-deception and harboring a dead faith. Strengthen us now to come to the Lord's table in full assurance of a living faith. We pray.